A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. This show is being recorded on Tuesday, April 26th for our normal Sunday spot because we're all going to be feeling rather delicate after the Missed Apex karting on Saturday. On the following Tuesday, we're going to experiment with a mailbag episode. So get your comments and questions in at feedback at mistapex.net and Matt and I will answer your questions. This week, we're going to go back into the past and explore another classic teammate battle. This time, it's Fernando Alonso versus Lewis Hamilton back in 2007. And we're going to explore the bubbling pot of excitement that is F1 in Miami. But first, Matt and I catch up with the greatest ever F1 statistician, Sean Kelly. If you say so, man, I, I'll, I'll happily take that. I think, uh, I think there are many more worthy, uh, worthy names for that. But, uh, but yeah, still somehow getting away with this and haven't been arrested. So good luck. You did, you did name one uh, pre-show that you felt was a, a gr- an even greater F1 statistician than you. Well, <laughs> easily. Uh, yeah, Jacques Descheneaux, who, who, pre- Compiles the compiles the Grand Prix guide. It used to be called the Marlborough Grand Prix guide uh. for years. The little red book that everybody had that was the must thing, you know, pre-internet to find F1 data and stuff. And uh, so Desheno was the man who created Formula One statistics and, and looked after them and so forth. Um, and I was once introduced as like the TV version of that guy. So I, I'll take that because everyone <laughs> in Formula One knows Desheno as being the, the the guy when it comes to written data. An obscure fact. Somebody asked me for obscure non-F1 facts. Okay. He was the presenter of the 1989 Eurovision Song Contest when Switzerland were the host after Celine Dion won in 88. How a Formula One statistician ended up hosting the Eurovision Song Contest, I don't know, but I'm looking forward to doing it. Uh, if anyone at RTE is listening in Ireland, next time Ireland win Eurovision, I'm available. Talk to my agent. Okay. Uh, well, that, that's not the, the direction I expected it to go, Matt. I was going to say, well, that's why I heard of him. Eurovision, of course. Of course. So what was the name again? Jacques? Jacques Descheneaux. Okay. Yep. Right now, if you ask most 
F1 fans, to name an F1 statistician, you're being very modest, but they will, if they know any, it will be Sean Kelly. So stop being modest and answer Lorna's question from our patron Slack group. You, you talked about the, the data and, and looking through Jack's encyclopedia of F1 stats. Lorna has asked, is it all publicly available data that you provide to F1 broadcasters or do you have secret sources of data? It is largely publicly available, Lorna. Thanks for the question, by the way. Um, you can subscribe. If you subscribe to um, Autosports database, forex.com, um, you can find a huge amount of data, raw data from that website on its own. And, um, you know, you don't need to, you don't need any trickery to, to do that. Um, and then I got a little bit, I put a little bit of, uh, you know, fairy dust on it in terms of I have my own database as well, but it's not using data that has been supplied to me by teams secretly or anything like that. No. It's all stuff that's in the public domain. And, um, you know, using that Thomas Edison quote, it's, you know, one, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. It is absolutely that case that, uh, it is just a lot of hard work and study that arrives at these single sentence sound bites that we can use in a broadcast. Yeah. Like anyone can read a book in the library, but you have to know where to go and when to go to that place. Right. Yeah. It, uh, half of the job is not just knowing it, but also in terms of, um, being able to file it somewhere that it can easily be found when we know we need it. Like, okay, we need something on Q3 right now. Okay, let's go to the Q3 directory here. Okay, here's gen everything we need to know about this Q3 session. Boom, we can just throw that out on the air right now. You know, you want something about Verstappen? Okay, let's go to the Verstappen directory. Okay, yes, that's put that in. Verstappen and Leclerc. Okay, yeah, we've got a Verstappen Leclerc stat. Roll that in and so on. So a lot of it then is just knowing where to look. Uh, one of our other listeners, uh, Sam Labine, asked, how does he work with all the data? Is it just Excel? Is it all up in your head? So, so, so give us a little portrait of how you might answer a question like that in real time. Um, normally, uh, very rarely am I actually asked questions by the broadcasters live. It, it does happen. Um, but generally speaking, they let me get on with stuff and, you know, they just, they, re they rely on me to roll this stuff in when I think it's going to be relevant. <laughs> I guess that's half of the, yeah. half of the job is being able to trust me to know if something interesting happens, Sean will give us this piece of information and, and we'll know to say it because if, if I've told them, you know, I could give you a hundred pages of data, but what use is it? You know, we just need, give us two lines. Just, we just need to know that bit. We don't need the rest of it, Sean. Very exciting. I'm sure you're very, very excited about it. We don't care. <laughs> um, sometimes they will ask me stuff and I'll, and, and often it, it cracks open this whole new realm of research where I think I hadn't thought of that. Let me go and have a look at it. And then I'll, I'll come up with the answer. And, I'll, and then there'll be a by the way on the end, which is, oh, by the way, um, you may not know this, but blah, 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 blah. So, um, you know, that can work that way as well. Um, but generally speaking, when we arrive on the air, most of what, what we're going to do in a broadcast has been mapped out already. Uh, yeah. You know? And then, and then there, there are races, obviously, like Hungary last year when, there's a bowling ball that goes through the entire front of the grid and we've got a completely different race <laughs> to what we'd anticipated. Yeah. So uh, when that happens, that's actually the most fun for me because then suddenly it's like, okay, what do you really know off the top of your head? Can, do you know all this stuff? Boom, 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 boom. Or when like Perez got pole in, in Jeddah. Oh, Mexican driver on pole for the first time in history, you know, 61 years after Ricardo Rodriguez on the front row. Um, and, you know, Perez longest F1 career before taking a pole. Like you've got to have that boom straight on yeah. the air. You know, so that, that tests your preparedness. A little bit about your, your job then, because the thought that just came to my mind there was 
FP1, FP2, FP3 must be quite a, you must be a very useful resource to people during those kind of sessions where they go a bit test match special. You know, the old cricket commentary with five-day English test matches where they go, ah, oh, yes, and uh, nothing's happened for quite some time, and the number 67 bus is uh, circling here at Headingley. So a little bit of background on the job. Uh, you are actually a resource for a lot of different broadcasters for statistics. It's not like you're just working for Sky or F1 TV. Correct. Yeah, I actually work for 16 domestic broadcasters. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and also um, for, F- for F1 themselves. Um, and, um, there's, so there's, there's the, there's the international feed, the world feed as we know it. Um, there's the domestic broadcasters. Uh, sometimes the teams will ask me for some stuff on the side as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on on a given weekend. Um, so yeah, there's, there's certainly, yeah. there's, there's, I have to wear a lot of hats, put it this way. You um, must be the richest man in the world. Well, if statistics actually paid anything, then yeah, I would be. Um, I would say that if um, I, I, the, re- the reason I've been able to make a career out of it is because so many people come to me that I can, I'm able to get away with it. Um, but it's yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say that I've uh, I, I haven't ordered the Gulfstream just no, yet. Not yet. I'm, I'm hold, holding off on that one just yet. Uh, I'm just going to go with the Cessna. Uh, I'm imagining your tax return must be a bit of a nightmare then, with 16 different income sources uh, at a minimum. Yeah, and there's also four different currencies as well. Um, oh, actually, five currencies. I mean, I get paid uh, pounds, US dollar, euros, Swiss francs, and Australian. So there's a like, yeah. I just shove it all to my account and say, you just tell me how much it is at the end. I don't care. I don't want all this paperwork. I'm paying you. You just tell me and I'll sign it and send the check. I'm glad or we've sometime, gone. Yeah. Or sometimes be late for my taxes because I haven't got any money. I'm glad we've gone down this route because the new Miss Apex policy is to dig deep into everyone's tax affairs. That's, that's right. mainly what we do here at Miss Apex Podcast. Now, we did get some great, great questions from our patrons. But Matt, I know you wanted to, to grill Sean a little bit about some, some new regulation stats. Yeah, well, I I was just curious because I saw uh, a couple of weeks ago someone on the internet going, "Oh, field spread is still field spread is still bad. Look at last season qualifying cutoff times." And I thought to myself, that doesn't seem like a great comparison in a new regulatory era to compare to the last season of an old regulatory era. So I was just curious to get your impression or or your understanding of. How is the field spread? Like 2009 is the last era I can think of that had sort of this big of an arrow change. How does it compare? And, and how does it compare across history? Have they really tightened it up in the way that they intended to? I'm not sure that these regulations, um, the, 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 the spread isn't as gigantic as it would have been in previous era of reg changes. But that's not because of reg changes, not, not technical reg changes, it's more to do with sporting reg changes because where we can trace the history of the sport as starting to get really close together was the introduction of the 107% rule in 1996. Before that, you could have cars like the 40s. <laughs> yeah. um, that's F-O-R-T-I, not F-O-R-T-Y, not the number 40, but the cars, the 40s. Um, they would qualify up to 10 seconds off the pace and they'd be in because there was only 26 entrants and there were 26 cars on the grid. So they knew that they were in no matter what happened. Uh, so they could come up with a car that was 10 seconds off the pace and still get a place. For 1996 onwards, that was not the case and it would start to be did not qualify. That forced teams to actually spend money and consciously make cars that were up to scratch. Um, 
from then on in, the, the, the field started to close in on each other. So now we've got, um, you know, grids that are closer than ever before. I mean, I, I, we've had Q1, many Q1s in recent times where the, the spread between Q1, between fastest and Q1 and elimination can be a, a second, 1.2 mm. seconds, which is incredible. I think back to Imola 1988, an often quoted weekend in statistical history. Is it? Where the two, it is. And I'll tell you the reason <laughs> okay. why. The two McLaren, Senna and Prost, on the front row of the grid at Imola in 88. Senna was in pole position. Third place was Nelson Piquet's Lotus, the world champion, in a, in a team that had won a race the previous year. Third on the grid, same engine. 3.3 seconds behind. He was third on the grid. That would get laughed at now. 3.3 seconds, you're miles off. You, that's Williams. Williams would beat you now. Um, but in 88, it was like, good job. Second row of the grid. That's encouraging. So that's, it, it's important to keep things in context and say, look, perhaps it seems like, um, you know, we need to make the cars closer together. They are close together. Yeah. This is cl- as close as they have ever been in Formula One. And that's why now, we can get races like Esteban Ocon winning in an Alpine when there's a bowling ball that takes out half the grid. <laughs> um, whereas back in the day, like from 19, what, from 85, I think, through to 96, like literally four teams won races for, you know, for a decade. For, for actually, from 87 to 96, after Senna's last win in the Lotus, right. uh, up until Panis winning for Ligier in 96. It was just Benetton, <laughs> Williams, McLaren, and Ferrari. That was Panis, though, at Monaco when the five, five cars finished. And there was, only, okay. yeah, there was only three cars running at the line. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was a crazy, yeah. crazy race. But even then, you know, as I mentioned, after introduction of 107%, before then, the, the dichotomy was such that, you know, even a, an injured McLaren or Williams would be easily quicker than the back of the grid car, like a Colonia or an AGS. So it, would, mm. it, it was just not going to happen. But now, now it is possible for a midfield team to win a race just, you know, because of a fortunate safety car or something like that. So, Sean, this is great because I think you're the same age as me, 41. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I vaguely remember things. Like, I'll remember a snippet of commentary. I've got a feeling you can tell me exactly what race this was. I remember Murray Walker saying, Michael Schumacher, he's going to, there was a messed up pit stop or something. And they said, he's going to need 15 qualifying laps to win this race. And it was, it was dubbed as like this miracle that he did. But he was winning other races that season by 47 laps or so. So that's how big the field spread used to be. You know, you had cars that could, 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 if they wanted to, lap the field over and over and over. Yeah, I mean, it, it was certainly theoretically possible. I mean, Schumacher won the first race in 94 by a lap because Senna spun off. Um, but Senna was the only other guy who was going to be on the lead lap. And at the second race that year, Schumacher <laughs> nearly won by a full lap. He, Berger was second in the, in the second race of 94, uh, and he was on the lead lap. So Schumacher could have lapped the field in consecutive races. Um, so, I mean, that would never happen now. Um, nowadays, you know, the fact that Verstappen lapped Hamilton in, at Imola, it yeah, was headline right. news. It was like, oh my God, what? All right, <laughs> all right, all right Sean, too soon. Jesus. <laughs> Matt. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm loving the historical context you're providing here because, you know, often people who watch Formula One for a long time say that, oh, these youngsters today, they don't know how good they have it. <laughs> and like, well, from your description, they really do have it pretty good. Yeah. If you think about the old days, um, I want to ask about a related statistic. I mean, we've seen, and because you were talking about Schumacher, we've seen Hamilton tie his record for drivers' championships but not go on to beat it 
yet, how yet, often has yet. it happened yet. in history yet? And that's <laughs> well, the question. Have we seen someone tie it, not beat it the next year, but then go on to beat it later on? I, I just, I don't know the answer. Well, in, in the case of Hamilton and Schumacher, of course, we're in uncharted territory because they are all-time records. And yeah. when, when Schumacher beat Fangio's record of five, um, he surpassed the record in the season after he equaled it, 2002, 2003. So um, it, would be, it, is, it would be unusual. It would have been unusual last year if, if Hamilton had won the title last year, as it seemed likely he was going to until that last safety car. Too soon. Um, um, he would have been the oldest champion, I think, since Alain Prost in 93. Um, and he can still be that this year. And, um, and then if, 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 if he waits another couple of years, he's getting into the realm of the, the oldest five champions ever, which I think <laughs> ooh, is... Ooh, ooh. It is one know. of our patron questions. Can I do the question oh. so that Rob Andrew gets some credit here? Uh, who Certainly. Are, Rob Andrews asks, who are the five oldest drivers to win a world championship? And based on that, does he think Lewis is likely to win an eighth? And, and this is a, a recent uh, tweet from a discussion between uh, me and Alex Van Jean when we were thinking about the ages of champions. And actually, Lewis Hamilton having won at 37, is already right up there in old drivers. You go have to go back to 2004 to have Schumacher winning at age, at age 30, 35. 30, age 35. So, so already, Lewis is a little bit of an oddity, along with Michael Schumacher, two phenomenons of the sport. So his question again, who are the five oldest drivers to win a world championship? I, I guess we're going back to 1996 for that, are we? No, not that far. Uh, I mean, one of them is Nigel Mansell. And Nigel Mansell won it when he was 39, I believe, oh, in 92. That's quite Alan Prost. Yeah. Alan Prost was 38 in 93. That was, a, that was, was an he? oddity. Yeah, they were very, they were very old. They were, they were absolutely, um, you know... You don't think were, of it. Were, no, I mean, you wouldn't think of them as being that old. But they, but they were genuinely, in, in F1 statistical terms, out of place compared to the rest of F1 history. Because that year, think of like the fact that Mansell won the title aged 39 in 1992 in the same year that Schumacher, um, age 23, was winning his first Grand Prix. <laughs> so that was, it was like the, the point where we sort of ushered out the late 30s <laughs> and ushered in the early 20s. There was, there was a paradigm shift after that. Um, the other, the, to, to answer the question, um, Fangio was 46, I believe, when he won his last title in 57. Um, uh, Farina was like 44. I can't remember exact, his exact age, but he won the inaugural title in 1950. Jack Brabham was 40 years old when he won in 1966. Um, Graham Hill, uh, he was, uh, what would he have been in 1968? He would have been uh, 38, something like that. Your um, brain and- just worked that out on the spot. Yes, because he was, I think he was 46 when he died in 1975. So he'd uh, have been around about that. Um, and then Mansell, as I mentioned, in 92 was 39 when he won the Spring title. Spring chicken. So. Jeez. Absolutely. But so for Lewis, so for Lewis to win this championship, to win any championship mm. from here on, especially as being not the champion, not the reigning yeah. champion, officially at least, even though some people won't, won't, won't hear of it, um, for him to win it back at this stage... I think will be one of the all-time great sporting stories. It's going to be Tiger Woods winning the Masters after everything mm. went through. In, when was it? 2019, I think it was. Um, it's going to be that kind of story. And, I, and, I, and I've said on Twitter, it will, if Hamilton wins this title back, especially in the circumstances of how he lost it, <laughs> it's Muhammad Ali beating Foreman okay. in the Rumble in the Jungle. It's winning the title back when you <laughs> thought he couldn't, when you thought he was no. done and over the hill. I, now, I'm a Lewis Hamilton fan, and to me, his physical fitness... 
and his his commitment to the sport seems extraordinary and he and he could be one of those you know annoying people that go on forever but for for an athlete at 37 you are already going into a, an irreversible decline that is just biology it would be something special to pick up a title now in this era obviously not the fangio type era i think it would be and, and, and not only that he would have to do it against an up-and-coming star in the form of george russell who everyone fancies what, what's that matt that's uh, three you got leclerc verstappen and yeah, now you're talking exactly. about russell i mean there's yeah. competition it, it's it's it, it, in my mind as a hamilton fan i feel like we've had the glory days and that's great we should appreciate it i i think it's it's beyond putting that you're not going to put your mortgage on him winning another title now the circumstances just don't quite seem to to, to be aligning well, yes. I mean, based on what you've seen at the start of the season, you would say, okay, the odds have lengthened considerably. But how many times have we seen him come back from, you know, a rocky start? You know, 2017, 2018, he was, 2018 especially, he was, he was quite a long way behind Vettel at one point in the championship, came back to win it comfortably. So um, it, it, yeah. it's, it's wrong to rule Lewis out. And yes, of course. The thing is, is it, only one driver in the last... Uh, 52 years has won a Grand Prix over the age of 40. 40 is the absolute no, cutoff. That's good that, 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 that stat that I regurgitate from time to time, Nigel Mansell at Adelaide in 94, age 41, the only race won by an over 40 driver since 1970. So that's that's the big cutoff point. Um, Alonso, but Alonso was on the podium in Qatar last year, age 40. That was the first, was only the <laughs> second podium over the age of 40 for any driver in the last 35 years. So it's not impossible. And the fact is, is that, Drivers are fitter than ever. They look after themselves better. Um, and Hamilton is, you know, the ultimate professional. I know people think he gets distracted hanging out with, you know, the Kardashians or whatever he's doing. But it's nonsense because the fact is he couldn't win all these championships if he wasn't totally focused on what he was doing. He couldn't just show up and just roll around the track and win a title because Bottas would have kicked his ass. Um, even yeah. and, and Bottas, was, it was the other way around. Hamilton would show up. You know, Bottas might take pole, then come come race day, Hamilton will be winning by 25 seconds. That doesn't happen just because he's good. It happens because of the commitment as well. Mm-hmm. So Hamilton can still do this. And if he does, as I said, it will, it won't just rewrite the history books, but it, it will, it will cement his legacy as a driver because people will always say, well, he just had the best car. Well, there was a period where, okay, it went into having a crap car after all these titles and he could have yeah. just said, threw his hand up, said, I've had enough. Yeah. And instead, if he comes back to win, it's like, wow, what well, a guy. It does feel like a medium-sized if at this point. Just a quick stat question then. I know uh, Matt's got a patron question next. I, I think Hamilton, since 2015, has deprioritized qualifying. Is, is there a stat on the most wins from not on pole? Um, there is, I'd, I'd be lying to you if I said I remember it off mm. the top of my head because Hamilton owns, uh, Hamilton owns yeah. wins for most wins from pole and most wins not from pole. Ah, um, okay. in 20, in 2020, uh, sorry, in 2021, he had already got a record. I, I forget the exact number, but I remember saying it in one of our broadcasts or, you know, to Crofty and so on. He has the most wins from below pole position of any driver in a single season. So, um, you know, it wasn't a case that Hamilton had to be on pole to win races. You know, he could, he was, as you say, there is, there is, there is evidence to suggest he might have not prioritized pole position as much because Bottas was quite close to him in in Q3 many times. Um, But in the race, very seldomly, uh, be a different, different set of affairs in the race completely. Yeah. And so I'm kind of interested because, um, 
Uh, Mike Stoner has asked, are there any stats from the early days of Formula One that today's teams and drivers will never beat? And I got to say, Fangio at 46 might kind of be one mm. of them. But are there any others that, that we should maybe know about? Um, well, I can start with one that is within reach. Um, the longest standing record, like performance record, which is most Grand Slams by a driver. Jim Clark has had that record since 1965. He has eight Grand Slams. What's a Grand uh, Slam, Lewis, Sean? A Grand Slam is a win from pole with the fastest lap and leading from start to finish. So it's the perfect race, basically. It's exactly what Max Verstappen had this weekend and what Charles Leclerc had in Australia, mm. which, side note, the first time in history that that has happened uh, where two different constructors <laughs> have done it in consecutive races. Um, with that in mind, Hamilton, I believe, has six Grand Slams off the top of my head. So he's too short of that record. So you think uh-huh. even Hamilton has not got to that record yet. Um, that, but that record has stood for more than half a century and is still in place today. Um, other records, I mean, age records, as Matt mentioned, uh, you know, oldest point scorer, uh, Louis Chiron, Monaco, 1955. Um, I mean, he was like 55 years old when he finished sixth in that race, I think. Um, so age, <laughs> age record, the, the old end of the market, uh, Luigi Fagioli winning France 51, you know, that, that, those are records. That's a shared drive though with Fangio. Um, those records are probably not going to be moved. Um, there's other ones like, um, I think it was a 54 British Grand Prix when seven drivers shared the fastest lap. So when you go to, <laughs> when you go to Formula One record books, and you look at Mercedes and Ferrari and, and um, Ferrari's points have 0.27 in, after them and Mercedes have 0.14 after them. Um, it's because they split the fastest lap seven ways at that race. So they have to divide <laughs> that one bonus point. So you've got these really weird numbers in the history books that have never changed in more than uh, in nearly 60 years because of that. So there's, there's some weird stuff from the first season of the World Championship. Uh, maybe other stuff like most cars on the front row, you know, four, mm. there used to be four cars starting on the front row at, at the Nürburgring, um, you know, little things like that. So there, there's a few anomalies along the way. This is fascinating. Uh, your, the, the Grand Slam f- poll? Yep. Starting mm. on, so, and then lead every lap and fastest yep. lap. That's the Grand Slam, right? Yep. But, but didn't Verstappen also win the sprint race? Yes, he did. Does that, so is we, there, do we need a new word? So we're moving into the realm of perhaps creating a new category, yeah. um, which is uh, somebody on my Twitter said, is, is it a super Grand Slam? Because <laughs> he won the sprint. And yeah. there is, and obviously, a, a, as we are moving to that format here, um, there is, there, there's there's merit to that because mm. I mean Verstappen got eight points for winning that sprint qualifying race race no race whatever you want to call it um, so he didn't lead all the laps in the race um, but ah. yeah it could be it, it's close to a perfect weekend I mean he won all the points it was a perfect weekend yeah. from the perspective we got all the points that were available um, so we'll we'll see we'll see how that develops how, what what term. You know what? What we find to be yeah. interesting. It, it depends what the public think. You know? Sure, sure. We're going to need one because the way it's going, I think there's some kind of sprint weekend Saturday race is going to become standard. I think they they are married to this. They're all in. But in the next couple of years, we'll have that as just a staple. So we will need some kind of term uh, for for completing the super scraping the barrel cash slam, the money mm. slam, the cash the slam. <clears throat> now, the, well, the funny thing is about this sprint format is that I. I have to say, I never met anybody who said, you know what we should do on Saturday? We should have a race on Saturday. I never met no. a single F1 fan who ever no. said that to me. <laughs> exactly. Um, but when it was introduced, I, I have to admit, I 
begrudgingly did think, well, we'll get I mean, used it to does, it. It does, it does make Friday interesting, doesn't it? And mm. also, you know, it's pretty exciting on Saturday to have them going, going around the racetrack, especially if you've paid for a ticket. Um, so there is that to it. The thing that I really, really annoys me is the redefinition of what pole position is. Oh, God. Because yes. that will scar the record books. All right, let, Sean, let's do this, because I don't know whether yeah. we're going to fall out or not, but how many times in F1 lore, in F1 canon, have we heard the term the pole sitter is such and such? You're the pole sitter because you sit on pole. So if Correct. you earn the right to stand to start first in the race, you are the pole position stat. Not if you won the pre-qualifying for the sprint race. Surely, Sean. Correct. Yeah, ah. I mean the origin. The origin of the phrase comes from horse racing, oh. which is the fastest qualifying horse would start closest to the the pole that was next to the start line, oh, aka pole position. That's how that was. That's how that term came into being. A lot of racing terms derived from horse racing because, of course, that predates the invention of the motor car. Um, so pole position, the driver that's on is it, the driver who is starting first on the starting grid. It doesn't matter the format of the session that determined that. So a lot of people have said to me, look, you're completely wrong. It should be the driver who was quickest in qualifying. No further discussion. Idiots. And I'll say, <laughs> and I'll say, well, what about the 1950 Monaco Grand Prix where the first two rows were decided in the Thursday practice session and then the rest of the grid was decided on Saturday afternoon? Or what about the 1959 German Grand Prix when Cliff Allison was quickest in qualifying, but because he was a reserve driver, he was not allowed to start from pole position. He had to start from the back and therefore was not credited from pole position. Or the 1969 British Grand Prix where Jackie Stewart set pole position with a spare car, which was an ineligible lap time. And therefore that is not pole position. Jochen Rint gets the pole position. There are countless examples of drivers being quickest in qualifying, but not being on pole position. And also a more recent example, um, in the era, the late 2000s, when uh, race, uh, Q3 was run on race fuel. Remember that? They yeah. used to choose their race fuel for Q3. Yeah. A great example. Yano Truly was on pole position for that notorious Indianapolis 05 race, the six-car yeah, Grand Prix. Yes. The reason Yano Truly was on pole in that race was because Toyota already realized they were not going to start that race. None of the Michelin runners were going to be in that race. So what Toyota did was they drained the tank, <laughs> put three laps of fuel in it, and said, go out and take pole position. We'll have the plaudits for pole position. We're not racing. It doesn't matter anyway. He took pole position. Now, how can you say, when we had years of qualifying on race fuel, oh, well, that, that's the ultimate determinant of who is quickest over one lap. It was not. That was not the ultimate determinant. There were drivers that were quicker in Q2 who did not get on pole position, but that didn't determine who was awarded pole position. The pole position was given to the driver in first place on the official starting grid. There was no mm. other definition thereof. Uh, and by changing that, we therefore open up this whole can of worms now, whereby Verstappen, we kicked the can down the road because Verstappen was on pole on Friday and on pole on Saturday. Lucky. So yeah. that was lucky. <laughs> but we could have a situation now where Ferrari could lock out the front row, but Verstappen would be on pole. And, you know, Verstappen, what, what if, you know, some driver comes along who's, all-time youngest driver on pole position, but he's starting 15th. That, you're going to have to explain that to your race day audience, and it's going to be just maddening. All right, so just to clarify that slightly, because basically Trulli had pole, first position was his, but the Michelin starters uh, did not start that race because it was deemed unsafe for them to start that race. So all the Michelin tired uh, uh, teams yes. pulled out. The rest of the grid that were on the Bridgestones lined up in the positions that they qualified in. 
They didn't Correct. shuffle That's forward. Right. So just going to yes. clarify that. So yeah. yes, a further point to that, which is that be- did not start. The, you know, if a driver does not start the race when he was officially in pole position He's on the still, starting grid, he still is accredited it. with pole <laughs> position. An example, Charles Leclerc, Monaco 2021. Leclerc did not start the race. He is still credited as being on pole position, even though he didn't start. It says on the starting grid, he was in first place. Mm. He gets pole position. Another example, Didier Pironi, when he crashed, had that big crash, career-ending crash, Hockenheim 1982. Pironi had pole position for that race. Ferrari did not withdraw that entry. Yeah. So on race day, if you watch the footage of that, and I'm sure you can, there are many video-sharing websites available, um, <laughs> you will see an empty spot at pole position. Peroni was the pole sitter for that race, even though he was actually sitting in hospital, laying in hospital, having surgery. Officially, he was pole position for that race. Well, my advice to you is don't hold it all in, man. <laughs> <laughs> you have a clear opinion about this, don't you? That was well, it's not, even a, it's not even an opinion. It's just stating a fact. It's, yeah. it's, no, it's not, it, this is not, in my opinion, it should be this. No, 72 years of the world championship tells me that this is what it is. And, and by changing it, you run the risk of confusing people and making it nonsense in a way that it, it isn't right now. Like everyone can understand, okay, who was in first place? Who started from first place? That guy's on pole. I, you know, Schumacher at Monaco 2012, fastest in Q3, is not credited with pole position. Go there to race day, he's not on pole position. Okay, we get it. He's not on pole. That's, that's end of discussion. Okay, well, we only have time for one more. And since oh. we talked so much, I know, well, this <laughs> well, just means Sean, maybe this, you'll come back exactly. sooner. Exactly. You've got a uh, home yeah. in the shed, Sean. What, yeah, you see, what, this is a thing. See, once you get me on this stuff, there's no stopping <laughs> me. You've got, you got, you got, you got to say, slow down, Sean. <laughs> All right. So um, this is kind of a doubleheader for which I'm famous, but it comes to us from Stephen F. this time. So technically not my fault. Um, first <laughs> one is, what's the most obscure non-F1 stat you know? And the second one is, do you know how many times your stats have actually been used by Sky? I have no idea how many times they've been used. I would say that typically in, in any given broadcast, I will see my stats on the graphics, on the Sky graphics, on the F1 TV graphics. I will, heard, I will hear them spoken by Crofty and company. Um, and I can always tell when, it's, when they're quoting me directly because they'll say it exactly the way I gave it to them. So I can nice. always tell like, oh, that's exactly what I said. Told them to say, basically. Um, so, I mean, that happens dozens of times in any broadcast. That's, that's normal. Um, as for a most obscure, well, there's a whole Jacques Descheno presenting Eurovision in 1989 sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, most obscure. I, little known fact about me. I started in 1987 when I started watching F1. I started watching, and I'm not making this up, Sumo Wrestling which was on Channel 4 in the UK at the yes. same time. That started... I'm liking this already. Go ahead. Channel 5, uh, Channel 4 in 1987. And I became as much of a sumo aficionado, uh, aficionado as I was a Formula 1 aficionado. So I knew my Chonofuji from my Hoktumi and my Kanishki, and I knew my Yurikiri from my Oshidashi. And um, even to this day, I still sort of keep tabs on what's going on in the world of sumo. And I know, uh, shout out to Hakuo, who yeah. is the, great, the greatest of all time, who's just recently retired yeah. after 14 years as a Yokozuna with uh, something like 40, 43 tournament wins, which is something like 12 more than any other um, wrestler in history. So, uh, yeah, greatest of all time. And a Mongolian. Strange thing is, his fun, fun non-F1 fact, it's been 30 years since two Japanese Yokozuna fought each other because all the Yokozuna in sumo have been from Mongolia or Samoa or Hawaii. That long? I, I mean, thirty I, years. 
I, yeah. I, I, of course, I, 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 I knew that trend. I just didn't realize it had been so long. You would think sumo wrestlers, they'd be all the Japanese. But the last yeah. time two grand champions of sumo fought each other, both from Japan, was 1991. And it was in London at the Royal Albert Hall. Hokutumi and Asai Fuji fought each other in a, in a, in a demonstration event in London in 1991. That is the last time two Japanese Yokozuna fought each other. I feel like this is actually a, a trait of... 40 somethings uh, Brits because I, I am similarly weirdly obsessed with the Indian sport of Kabaddi. Kabaddi, uh, another yes. Channel 4. Another yeah, Channel 4. Another thing. Channel 4 special. And like me and my friends, we used to recreate and play Kabaddi in the playground. But Sean Kelly, this has been an incredible stat attack. You always have a, a seat in the Missed Apex uh, podcast shed. Where can people follow you online so that they can find out where those stats are really coming from? Find me on Twitter and Instagram at Virtual Statman, where you can see how much I love Lewis and how much I hate Lewis, depending on what it is I just said about him. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you are both uh, <laughs> biased towards Lewis and towards Max Verstappen, and you also hate them both. I've, I've... I, 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 I do. I, I very, very pro Verstappen, and also I hate Max Verstappen as well. Yes. Excellent. Well, a universal love and hate. That's Sean Kelly to a T. And if we can avoid Liverpool matches, we'll get you back in the shed as soon as we can. Thank you very much indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. While we recover from the stat attack of Sean Kelly, we can relax and we can set our mind to glorious beaches, to lifting some weights and sculpting our guns on the sunny shores of Miami, which is going to be the next Grand Prix, so we can all be muscle-bound and ready for the glamour of the 47th US Grand Prix of the season. And who better to take us through uh, uh, the Miami Grand Prix's sights and sounds than Magnus Greaves from Race Weekend magazine. Magnus, thanks so much for joining us in the shed. Thanks for inviting me, guys. You are the entrepreneur and author behind Race Weekend magazine. Remind our listeners what that is. So many of our listeners actually subscribed to yes. your to your Race Weekend magazine uh, around Christmas. I think a lot of people said it made a fantastic Christmas present. Uh, remind us what it is. So Race, Race Weekend magazine, our whole thing is to explore the circuits, the cities, the culture of Formula One. 
So other people do all the stats and, and race reporting. <laughs> yes. We choose a big theme about Formula One each issue and go and dive in. It's a extra large, supersized magazine, tons of photos, um, but also we dive in and, and cover a story. So whether it's Formula One in the 1970s or Jet Set Formula One or the new one that's coming out, which is Formula One in the USA, mm-hmm. we take a big topic and we we explore it in uh, in different ways and uh, just to be clear not a paid promotion we're just we're internet oh. f1 friends although you did force me to take a cut of uh, of the subscriptions that mr apex listeners I, took I, out I, I did shove money in your pocket <laughs> i forced you to take it sure. which i'm grateful to the listeners and yourself magnus uh, that obviously helped us out a great deal but if if you don't mind i'd like to just pick your brains about Miami, because you guys are going down there to take part in one of the million fan fests around Mm -hmm. the city. What I think some people are really underestimating is how big a deal this is to Miamians, Miamites. What I experienced, so we went down there uh, a few weeks ago. We were actually partners with the Miami Grand Prix to create uh, the official guide to the race weekend. So we went down there to capture all the content so what happens in the city and then where that overlaps with motorsports and the sort of car scene over there i've been to a lot of cities before a grand prix but never have i experienced anything like this where oh, yeah. every single person was very excited when we told them what we were doing usually we say formula one they'll say you mean nascar we're like no <laughs> we mean formula one and it's this awkward discussion but there everybody was so excited about it everybody was so aware of it and they would turn around and say to me, hey, did you know Formula One, the Grand Prix is bigger than the Super Bowl, and we have it for 10 years. And I think that was one thing that Miami did really well, was to let people know this is a big event, and it's a 10-year event, which allows, whether it's businesses to invest financially to get behind it, or the fans sort of emotionally and take pride in it. So the, the level of awareness there was phenomenal. The thing that really blows me away is... Oftentimes, when you go to a race, as soon as you leave the circuit, things tend to sort of the the spirit of Formula One, the festival of it disappears. Mm. Uh, With Miami, there are I've found so far four independently produced fan festivals that are happening throughout the weekend. You'd be lucky in in a Grand Prix destination to have one that runs alongside. Miami has four. And so we're setting ourselves up at one of them, the one in, in Wynwood, but we're also, you know, trying to be active in, in the other three as well. But that that just shows you how much people understand and are excited about what's happening in Miami. Uh, hey, Magnus, uh, it's Trumpets. I have to ask, like, you've been to races, like you've been to Monaco, you've been to Singapore, right? I've, I've been to both of those. I've been to both of those. And I'm just getting the feeling from the sidelines that is Miami going to be like in that league in terms of like the glitz and the glamour and the celebrity that we're going to be seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Because Miami on its own is a very, very glamorous, exciting place to be. And it's really kind of had its moment, you know, through the pandemic and, uh, you know, all the people that have moved there and all the new things that have that have arisen. But in a place like Monaco, Monaco is fantastic. So long as you're one of the sort of few people there that has enough money to actually stay in Monaco and, (laughs) you know, people to get onto a boat. But for for most of the rest of the people, you're taking a train or something to get there. You're leaving as soon as you can and you're not really participating in that glamour. Miami is different because not only is it sort of, you know, more people can kind of come, 
But there's, you know, with the fan fest and just with the overall party nature of the city, there are so many themed events, so many F1 related events going on. So I think it's more accessible. That sort of level of glamour is more accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, Singapore, I think, is is an amazing race because it's also a night race and you're in the middle of the city. So as soon as you're done with the race, you sort of, you know, roll out and you're in a club and a, and a bar. And I think Miami, you know, the, the circuit is a, is a little bit out of where you know, like South Beach and the, the party areas. But as soon as, as the race is over, there are so many places around the city that you can go and get stuck into the action. And also what I'm noticing beyond the fan fest is that more teams and sponsors are doing activations around the city that, that fans can actually be a part of. I mean, oftentimes they do very private events that nobody else can get into unless they have a, a, a VIP invite. But in Miami, there seems to be so many teams and sponsors doing things that other people can can join so it's just going to be it's going to be crazy uh, you mentioned you know the, the glamour there of uh, of other venues and miami doesn't seem to be shy in saying we're trying to emulate that we, we've seen the things that are successful elsewhere and we want to match that and then improve it to the point that they've got a fake marina in the in in I guess not anywhere near a coast at all. It's a football stadium, isn't it? But they've got like a fake pool with like yachts and stuff. They they they, they do, but it's you know it's all in the name of fun and putting on the best mm. possible show that they can. You you have eighty thousand tickets, and you have over three hundred thousand people, I believe it was, that applied for those tickets. So there there is huge <laughs> demand there. Miami puts on amazing world-class events like Art Basel and everything. The, the expectation of a great party and a great venue is at its highest in a place like Miami. So it's not enough to do what the other races are doing. They have to go to a whole other level. And I think they've, they've really achieved that. You know, the, the amount, it's funny. Sometimes you see these celebrities at races and you think, oh, well, I, I, I you know, I think Formula One probably paid or helped helped get that person or recruited that person to come in Miami is very different. And, and the, the number of celebrities and, 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 you know, glamorous people, whatever you want to call them that are coming, I think is at a whole other level. And they've had to build special things at the circuit to accommodate them. And I think what's also cool now is I think before it was, um, you know, they're trying to get celebrities out just to kind of get a little bit of that shine. But now these are people that are actually, Formula One fans themselves in their yeah. own right. So I think it's going to be quite a quite a cool atmosphere out there. Okay. So, I mean, you said that this issue is about F1 in the U.S. What is Miami telling us about the future of Formula One in the U.S.? I think Miami is going to raise the game in terms of uh, what what the people's expectation is for coming to a circuit and, and having an overall race weekend. You know, like I was saying, some – sometimes you go to a race it's great at the circuit but then it falls apart Miami's worked really closely with the city uh, and a lot of the venues around there to make sure it really is the sort of festival atmosphere you you remember uh, Liberty when they came in and bought F1 they said we're going to make every weekend a Super Bowl (laughs) well they did nothing to make that happen right that said, Miami itself has actually hosted a Super Bowl. So they know that you get 80,000 people to the game, but you get 500,000 people that come to town to to go to parties and to sort of, you know, get that experience in a different way. And so, you know, I think this is the first race where that Super Bowl feel for, you know, which is what they're after is really going to be felt. I mean, you 
you know, you get that in, in a place like Montreal, but they've sort of been doing that for years. I think Miami, the efforts that they're going to, and then the efforts that all the people around the city are going to is going to set a whole new standard. So I think a lot of uh, circuits are going to look at themselves and think, damn, we, we, we got to, uh, we got to up our game here. Well, I mean, circuit of the Americas sort of gained attention by firstly, of course, doing the driver parade thing where they went in the red corner, Fernando Alonso. And then also having like Taylor Swift doing a concert at the track and really kind of combining the whole motorsport and entertainment into a festival. And with these four, did you say four fan fests dotted around? It really does look like they're creating a a festival of Formula One. Do you think, because that's not very British, none of that, nothing you've said is very British or European. Do you think that's going to spread and like the US way is going to, it's basically going to have to be, look, if you want to be part of the F1 circus now, this is the template you have to follow. Well, well, I think it. I think it's a couple of things. I think it's going to be fans' expectations for paying a lot of money to come to a race and that full, complete experience that they want to have throughout a race weekend. You know, so I think I think the fans are going to dictate that. I think that the sponsors that spend a heck of a lot of money on Formula One, and to be honest with you, they're invisible during most Grand Prix in terms of interaction. I think that they're going to get such a great return on investment uh, and and you know, not just financially, but in terms of engaging with fans, that they're going to demand this level of activity, you know, going forward, right? Mm. I think good point. the number yeah. of extra fans that are going to come out of this is going to dictate how things go, you know, from this point onwards. So, so a sponsor might say, oh, I've got the choice between uh, Zandvoort and Miami. Well, if I go to Miami... I know I'm involved for five days. I'm at all these events. If I go to Zandvoort, really, I'm only getting publicity on a on a Sunday. So, wow, I'll just choose Miami, and then it becomes a an arms race, right? Right, and then and then whether it's Zandvoort or or, or Silverstone or whoever, they they're going to decide. Look, let's go back to actually what you were saying about Austin. So, I love mm-hmm. Austin. I I always have a great time there. They put so much into what happens at the circuit. You're hardly going to find a better circuit experience there. But they don't do much in the city, right? And so, so it's all good and well to keep adding things at the circuit. But if most of your weekend, you know what I mean, your in the, your nights are spent in the in the city itself, yeah, you're going to have a great time in Austin because it's just a cool place to go mm-hmm. out. But once you see that in a place like Miami, you can actually go to uh, an F1-themed party or McLaren is putting on this whole speed shop concept or there's four different fan fests. And I think part of that needs to be initiated from Formula One, or at least they need to get out of the way. I think (laughs) part of it comes from the sort of the teams and the sponsors. But what's super cool about Miami is that you have a lot of independent event companies, clubs, restaurants they know what it means when Art Basel comes to town. Yeah. So they they recognize, hey, let's do that again and more now that we have this great international spectacle of Formula One. So, I mean, we're very lucky now in the United States. We've got three races. 17 races. And, and it's going to be, I think, five in a year. Have we reached that magical, the U.S. audience is now captured point from, uh, from a business point of view? Do you see the U.S. suddenly finally being that market that Formula One has long sought. Well, absolutely. But I also think that people don't realize that the American audience has been huge to Formula One for several years. 
right? If you've looked at where the online traffic comes to F1.com and to social media and everything for a long time, the United States has been, you know, the number one sort of market. Now that you have three races, especially if they're going to go to this level of, of entertainment and involvement, you know, now from my perspective, there's enough happening just in the United States to have a thriving F1 related company, which, you know, two years ago, that certainly wasn't the case. I'd go to a race and people thought it was nuts that I was actually based out of North America. Now those same sort of European companies and partners are looking at me like, wow, that's a strategic advantage to work with you because you're in the middle of the biggest market in Formula One. So it's amazing how quickly those things change. And I promise you, you will see new things launch in Miami and shortly after as well that reflect the fact that there is an actual U.S., like a thriving U.S. market. So Stop you're going to see you, you new me media wanna, entities and new businesses. You're making me want to book tickets, Magnus. You make I it. told you for months to book tickets. That's on you. Well, the thing is, with, with Miami, there was just no way. Like, if you if you didn't get into that first wave, you weren't you weren't getting there. But now I'm turning my attention to Cota and, uh, you know, I like a little blackjack. So uh, Las Vegas next year sounds good, so, too. Listen, Coda Coda is going to be really great. It's great every year at the circuit, but I'm already a lot of the the fan fests and the companies that I'm working with in Miami. They're already saying we've got to re- replicate this in Austin, even though they're not Texas companies, right? So I think it's going to be everything going forward. I'm already seeing the the influence that Miami is having, but again, I think I think you're missing out by not being in Miami. Even if you're not at the track the whole time, just what's going to happen around the city and the number of fans that are going to be there, I think it's, um, you know. It's I'm, in, I'm in a blue shed in a rainy Bedfordshire. You do not need to tell me that I'm missing out by not being in Miami. Uh, thank Sorry, you so much for your time here. It is nice to get your, your insight, uh, especially on uh, American stuff, but also just the fact that you really do promote F1 races as, as a venue as a destination, as a thing to go to. And that's what Race Weekend magazine goes to. I I like you guys. I like your magazine. You send me a copy, which helps me want to promote it. But it makes us look posh in our house. It's a a big, like, A3? A3? Yeah, yeah, it's huge. And and, uh, so many great pictures in it. I don't even have to do a lot of reading. I've not read a book since Netflix got good. So on your coffee table, on your piano, Race Weekend magazine does make your house uh, of an F1 fan look amazing you've done a great job with that can you explain in terms that even matt trumpets could understand how i go on the internet and how buying your magazine works so so we we do all of our subscription sales online at theraceweekend.com what's super exciting about miami again sorry i keep going back to it but we're we're actually um, setting up one of the fan fests it's called racing fan fest in winwood so for the first time we're actually selling magazines and subscriptions live so people can actually flip through it before they, they make the purchase. And we're launching this week our new issue, which is F1 in the USA, which is nicely timed in terms of a theme with, with Miami. And I think what a lot of fans, especially the new fans, don't realize is the long, deep history of Formula One racing in the United States, whether it's the 11 venues that have now hosted a, a U.S. Grand Prix, whether it's all the American drivers that have actually participated or the U.S. brands and, and sponsors. So, you know, we're, we got a few times. We actually have um, Daniel Ricardo on the cover, and he sat for a, an interview with us. Oh, nice. Talk, 
to talk about why he loves the USA so much. So um, yeah, we had a lot of fun with this. Did, issue. did you interview Daniel Ricardo? You know, I was I was scheduled to, but I was actually on the flight to Miami, and uh, the wonderful Elizabeth Blackstock uh, she she did the interview and she did a great job. I have a theory that Daniel Ricardo is secretly evil, and it switches like as soon as the cameras come on and the interviews come on, he goes from like kicking in an intern to being you know Uncle Danny, your best mate. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Evil Ricardo. I've only ever seen him smiling, so... Yeah, that's what he wants you to think. Magnus Greaves, <laughs> Race Weekend Magazine. Links in the show notes below. Enjoy Miami, you git. I hate you. I certainly will. Uh, and have a fantastic time. Thanks for your time, Magnus, and uh, good luck with the future. Thanks, guys. I made it sound like a job interview where you were getting rejected, didn't I? Good luck in all your future endeavours. <laughs> yeah, we're not hiring him. Magnus, thank you for your time. <laughs> Well, from the glamour of Miami, we go to Jersey to catch up with Jeff O'Boyle. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Spanners. Uh, glamorous as ever in Jersey. It's it's a wonderful metropolis of um, high culture and sophistication. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah, and uh, not paying any tax. Yeah, we pay a little bit of tax. We always pay the appropriate rate of tax, I think is what we, what we say. Nice of you to chip in. So, <laughs> last time you were on the show, in fact, the last two times you've been on the show, it was to give us a rundown of historic teammate battles. It's been very interesting to look back into the past. It was Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber on the last one. It generated a lot of emails, maybe a hundred comments and emails, because you made, you made a mistake, Jeff. Yeah, dare I make a mistake? I do apologise on behalf of all the <laughs> massive Stuart fans who got in touch to confirm that Red Bull used to be Stuart and not um, Minority, which of course became Toro Rosso. I do apologise to everyone involved in Stuart Racing, and um, I'll be printing a full a full retraction yeah, yeah, yeah. in any publication they, they they care to mention. So it was Toro Rosso was Minardi. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we'd like to disassociate ourselves from Jeff's comments. But these things happen. It was a really good breakdown of the the teammate battle. And we got into the spirit of it. And we're always going to misspeak and get the odd thing wrong. So I thought we'd make it a game of what did Jeff get wrong? (laughs) Email us at uh, feedback at mistapex.net and tell us what Jeff gets wrong in this episode. As we dive into 2007, uh, one of the, the most eventful and talked about teammate battles in, in F1 history, probably. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Yeah, it, it was an absolute banger uh, in terms of controversy. It, it's um, If you think Leclerc and, and Vettel's season where, you know, Vettel was the established number one and then Leclerc came in, was fast, and he had to bind wheels a couple of times, was controversial. You ain't seen nothing compared to this. You might have younger viewers who aren't quite familiar with exactly what happened so we'll run down some of the key races maybe and and how the 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 um the the thing evolved but there's politics involved in it there's a fine there's all sorts of nonsense there's a (laughs) a championship lead that was seemingly untouchable and then became touchable so it had everything really it had real spice a proper bitter battle i think maybe we set the scene though and talk about where these two drivers were when they came into this because fernando alonso was the double world champion he was the the cock of the walk he was. He was the established number one reigning world championship, made the move to McLaren expecting a decade of dominance to follow. And you know, who would bet against him? Because you've got this 
young hot shoe Hamilton, who you know he did well in GP two. He was he was very good. He had some extraordinary drives there. Um, insert Turkey here. That's probably the wrong one. So there's your first clue that I might have made a mistake. <laughs> but he was he was reigning GP two champion. But so was Julian Palmer. You know, it's he, he was a lot was expected of, of Hamilton, but I don't think people expected him to be quite as as hot as he was. It's interesting that not all GP two or F two. Not all second tier seasons are made equally. So Jolian Palmer, of course, he had like four cracks, didn't he, at, at that second tier. And then the season he won, maybe not the strongest season, but, you know, you've still got to go and collect and, and deliver. I think Hamilton's was a more straightforward, more promising rise up. So I don't think anyone would, would be surprised that he turned out to be good. Yeah, I think he was expected to, you know, once he got up to speed, keep Alonso honest, I suppose, would be a good benchmark for him. But I don't think they expected what happened at the first race, first corner, where um, he was no Alonso. Sorry, Hamilton proved himself to be no respecter of reputations <laughs> and was was really at it from from the start. Yeah. So uh, was it a surprising appointment for for Lewis Hamilton to go in there? So it's a bit of a risk, isn't it, if you bring in a, a genuine young hotshot? Yeah, I think it was it was a bit of a surprise, but there's been a long history of having the established number one and the, the young number two who learn the ropes and come up through a you know, promising driver. Let's see what he can do. But we don't need to worry too much about his performance because, of course, Alonso was going to win the championship, isn't he? He's, he's already the two-time world champion. He's probably in the best car. Um, you know, the, the sort of McLaren, the McLaren Ferrari, as it became uh, known as the, the sort of Spygate um, mm. details came out. But yeah, I think the it was a risk, but it's not as if they were putting two young drivers in or two non-established drivers. They still had Alonso, who was at the time considered to be the best driver in the field. Uh, yeah, he definitely was. And I think we, we've sort of got used to Uncle Uncle Fernando, haven't we? But that wasn't the same driver back in those days. He was a, a full-on lion who was heading off to go and beat everyone's records so this was a phenomenal challenge ahead of Lewis Hamilton and and it kind of echoes a little bit the George Russell situation as well and I think did it start off did it start off reasonably respectfully I think Lewis Hamilton went in there racing hard but one of the things I remember at the time was sort of well it was in with like within the first few races going oh no this is legitimate yeah so his you wouldn't expect a, a rookie to come in and do particularly well first race at Australia, but um, and and as you'd expect, Alonso qualified second. I think it was uh, Hamilton qualified fourth, uh, so pretty respectable, but not setting the world on fire. But at the first corner, Hamilton went around the outside of Alonso and Kubica uh, and into second place. Now that was pretty impressive and got everyone's attention. But as the race went on, the, the true order was established. Alonso was faster. He got back in front. And uh, Alonso, fin- sorry, uh, Hampton finished some distance behind, and that was the pattern really for the for the first few races. It wasn't until they got to, we got to Canada where Hamilton actually had his first win. Um, Alonso had already won a race by then and and was doing a bit better in the championship. But um, there's another clue that's probably mistaken there as well, or three or four mistakes. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was harmonious enough. Um, I suppose Monaco was the first flashpoint. They got to Monaco and Alonso won, Hamilton was second. And that seems pretty straightforward. You know, that's fine as it should be. But it was the way it played out. So Hamilton was all over the gearbox of Alonso for sections of that race, was frustrated that although team orders were officially banned, uh, that he wasn't allowed to have a fair crack at at Alonso and try and overtake. I don't remember this at all. How did they they stop him? Uh, Well, 
I don't know if they were, at that point I don't think the team radio was was broadcast in the way it is now so they <laughs> ah, probably just told okay. him not to yeah. uh, but he was he was uh, Hamilton was careful in his words afterwards when he was interviewed by Andrew Benson for the BBC he said that um, he wanted to attack he felt he had the pace to win but then he didn't say I was told to slow down and hold position what he said was I have to respect that I'm a rookie he's a world champion and uh, he's got number 1 in the car I've got number 2 and we have to I have to be patient so um so I think he you know that was a a clue as to how good Hamilton might become when you know I, I know you hate Monaco spanners and a lot, a lot of us do but it's traditionally seen as a benchmark for the real hot drivers if you can push a lap around Monaco and and not put it in the barriers you you, you know you're you're pretty special and that was the first hint I think that he he could become something special so George Russell has made some comments in the week. Uh, in fact, it was before the Imola Grand Prix where he made these comments like, I'm not going to come in here and start throwing my weight around with a seven-time world champion. It's not my job to start demanding things, very much playing that kind of respectful role. So I do wonder in that PR, in that situation, is he responding to what he's been told by the team or is he playing a coy game? But it's interesting now to think to Lewis Hamilton playing that exact same game. Because you know if you start kicking off in that situation as Lewis Hamilton and saying, how dare you, and start throwing your helmet around, punching holes in the wall, Ricardo style, they'll just go, well, we'll just bring in the, the next rookie off the block, mate. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting when you when you think of what Hamilton became and how he was a bit more coy then. I don't think he believed a word of it in terms of the I've got to be respectful and sit behind him because there were there were it was only another um, couple of races later where Hamilton was winning and and winning com- you know not comfortably but beating uh, Alonso on pace. So mm. he never had any intention of sitting tight and sitting behind <laughs> him. He was he was out there to, to you know get out of the blocks fast prove his worth in F1 and uh, he you know he feared no one at that time but yeah that the the echo Russell's had some PR training obviously since since Emily 2021 yeah. when that uh, that didn't famously go particularly well for him someone needed to drag him out of that pen and have a word with him before he oh, kept th- saying. this was when um, they cra- he clashed with Valtteri Bottas and basically with Bottas still sat in the car went up to him and gave him like a proper telling off and then and then kicked off a little bit in the pen in a very polite sort of George Russell way yeah, fairly polite, um, but uh, yeah, a bit of damage done there. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you'll see if we get on to Hungary and when things really go Let's go, go wrong. Let's for go them. there. We can go there. So yeah, Hamilton had his first win in Canada. Uh, Alonso had a disaster, finished seventh. USA, Hamilton wins again. Alonso second. But at, at, at the USA in Indianapolis, Alonso crossed the line, swerved towards his own team that were gathered on the wall and, and shook his fist like, why I oughta? Um, oh really? Like aggressively, like bad. Yeah, why? Ag- aggressively sugar. Well, he finished second behind Hamilton, and oh. I think Alonso's expectations were slightly different coming into the team that he would be given proper number one status, and and it was becoming clear that maybe that wasn't the <laughs> case. And Uncle Ron might have had a new favourite. Oh, do you think the tide was already starting to shift by then? Yeah, it it looks mm. like it. I mean, the the um, it I, maybe Ham- Dennis was giving them both a fair crack at the whip, but. Alonso didn't necessarily want both of them to have a fair crack at the whip. He wanted you know to win with with one hand behind his, Hamilton's back, effectively. So, yeah, I think that's where the team dynamics started to break down, and there might be a few criticisms of the way that Ron Dennis managed the you know the two young stags in in a field, if you like. I love this. This is like like you mentioned the Ferrari Leclerc thing, where Vettel was the ordained one. He was four-time world champion. He was Mr. Ferrari at that time. You know, he was the, the chosen next one 
after Alonso. And then you saw this change mid-season. And it's little subtle things like when they were coming together... Did they come out fully in support of Vettel? No, not really. Did Was Vettel losing his cool a little bit? I, I can't remember which way round it was. I think it was Vettel drifting into Leclerc at Brazil, at Interlagos, which really made you go, what is going on? And and you think, have they fallen out of love with Sebastian Vettel? And sorry, Uncle Joe, Joe Sayward told me I was bonkers when I said they might have fallen out of love with Vettel. And then, of course, they announced that they were they were letting him go. So these these things do tip. And they do change. You know, uh, look at Red Bull 2022 with, with Perez is resurgent. No, okay, that's a bit premature. But it, it does happen. Kings fall. Yeah, and, and actually we've we'll come on to Hungary next. What happened yeah. in Hungary was so extraordinary and, and so um, catastrophic for Alonso that you might say that this one moment of madness and frustration is what set in, in motion a series of events which would... Would 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 result in Alonso never fulfilling his full potential and and still being stuck at you know fifty five or whatever he is now uh, on on two world championships oh, because wait you're going to say that everything is is going to stem from here from yeah, this moment this is it. Ferrari the McLaren fake podium with Jensen Button uh, GP two engine everything starts here in the Hungara ring in two thousand and seven. In the pit lane, not even on the track. Tell us what happened. As if I didn't see it. As if I didn't see it. Well, let me set the scene. We're in Hungary. It's a mild day. (laughs) (laughs) The number of 47 Uh, bus is going. Yeah. So we're we're in the final phase of, of, or going into Q3 effectively. And if you remember back, they had the fascinating fuel burning section of of phase of qualifying, which was just bewilderingly bonkers. Yeah. So during that phase, the team had ordered Hamilton to sit behind Alonso, give Alonso track position. Hamilton didn't do that. He, he, he had other ideas. So, you know, Hamilton struck first, if you like, in the in the battle, um, or what, what would become the sort of tension between them. Uh, H- Hamilton didn't give him track position. Alonso thought, I think, that he would teach him a bit of a lesson. So when they came into the pits for their final pit stop um, before you know the final run in Q3, uh, Alonso was in front. Hamilton, they were double stacked effectively. Hamilton was sitting in behind. The lollipop came up, and Alonso didn't move, and he sat there for what was an inordinate amount of time. I think anyone who watched it live must have had to have their buttocks surgically <laughs> unclenched at the end of it. It was so uncomfortable mm. to watch. And he sat there counting in his head uh, how many seconds he could hold up Hamilton and still get out for his lap. And that's exactly what Hamilton happened. Alonso crossed the line with a second or so to spare, got his lap time in, and Hamilton was too late by the time they got got his new tyres on and got out. Now, that didn't play particularly well in the team, and I think it blew up to such an extent that, that even Alonso was surprised. But then he made another catastrophic mistake. I mean, the first one was bad enough, but you yeah. might say, oh, you know, everyone gets frustrated. It's fine. It, you know, Hamilton That's your teammate. That's thing, your but... teammate, though. That's half of the guys in the garage. You've screwed over their qualifying session. Yeah, it's not ideal. Mm. Uh, 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 recollections may differ, but, but it's not ideal. But what happened next was was really what set Alonso's decline into in, in, into motion because on the Sunday morning of the race, Ron Dennis had a massive argument. We understand with uh, with Alonso. Now, during that argument, things got a little bit more heated than they should have done. And Ron Dennis was never famous for his diplomacy; probably didn't handle it particularly tactfully. But I think he was right to be angry. But what Alonso did next was extraordinary. So. Nothing to do with the racing, nothing to do with the track. He he brought politics large into the argument. 
McLaren were already uh, suspects in this Spygate affair, and that was it was alleged that um, well, McLaren did have a dossier of technical information from Maranello from the Ferrari. Like what Alonso said to Dennis was, "I've got emails that prove that." Um, you're implicated in this and McLaren are implicated Ooh. in this by again and you're guilty of it and I'm going to go to the FIA with them. He allegedly that, said this, alleged conversation. Alleged conversation mm. according to the BBC's yeah. um, uh, reporter at the time, Brian, uh, sorry, uh, Andrew Benson. Oh, okay, in that case, we can just say uh, it was reported and then we're... Yeah, it we're was doing, reported yeah. that yeah. Uh, yeah. this is what happened. So what, what did happen next, it was reported, is that um, Dennis got freaked out that Alonso was going to roll the grenade in. So... He got the preemptive strike in first. Dennis, Ron Dennis phoned Max Mosley, the head of the FIA, and confessed that this is what had happened with, with Alonso. Wow. So he basically um, shot himself in the, in the face. <laughs> he just for, went for the jump. Oh, yeah? You, you, you think you can shoot me? Yeah, well, I'm going to shoot myself. That'll show you. <laughs> You can't fire me. I quit. Yeah. So that was that was not a great move either. I mean, the, Alonso. Who knows if Alonso would have carried on through with the threat? You'd have to think probably not. Uh, if he was given assurances about what might happen in the future and parity or number one status, whatever it took to stop that threat being fulfilled is what should have happened. Not I'll phone the FIA and dog myself in. Yeah. So anyway, um, as a result of that, uh, McLaren's season went pretty badly they were uh, disqualified from the uh, constructors championship coming into spa that weekend they were fined a hundred million dollars which uh, you know i'm old enough to remember when a hundred million dollars was quite a lot of money um that obviously had a, an impact on development for the car and everything else but the driver's championship was still up for for grabs and you'd have to think well of course ron dennis must have fired alonso on the spot for something as insubordinate mm-hmm. as that but no he he didn't he he was asked about it afterwards and he gave a really bizarre answer. He said, who who has not, in the heat of the moment, in an argument with his wife, said something that they regret? Which, you know, no comment. It, it offers more questions than answers, really, about yeah. Dennis's relationship with his own wife, let alone with, with Alonso. Very, very, very strange thing to say. But mm. anyway, Alonso stayed in the car. Pedro De La Rosa was passed over again and again and again. Didn't too get the too handsome to sit in a Formula One car, quite frankly. <laughs> He was blessed in other ways, yeah. um, but the uh, the the rest of the season was was sort of ebb and flow between um, Hamilton and, and Alonso. The next three races, Alonso did really well. He outperformed Hamilton at Turkey, Italy, Belgium, and then we get to Japan. So we've got uh, I think three races left: Japan, China, and mm-hmm. Brazil. Japan, Alonso crashes out in the rain. Hamilton wins, and then it's advantage Hamilton. Two races to go. And it, it's it's all on Hamilton. He's the bookie's favourite. Now, you said to me pre-show, it was a 17-point lead. But what was the point system back then? Yeah, 10 for a win. 10 for uh, a win. Yeah, yeah. so he, he's got 12 points over Alonso and 17 over Raikkonen. So Raikkonen's <sighs> effectively out, isn't he, at this stage, oh, you have to think. I remember. I remember. I can't believe Raikkonen ended up winning this championship. Oh, my God. You can, look, it, it's painful when we relive these things. Because we, as fans, live in the moment so much on these seasons. You talk about them again and it just all comes rushing back. I know we'll be doing this in 2035 and you'll be talking about Abu Dhabi 2021. And I'll be going, shut up, Jeff. It's too soon, Jeff. <laughs> but yeah, the next, robbed. the next couple of races are quite traumatic. Yeah, so I, mean, all, I don't mean to make this any worse for you, but all <laughs> Hamilton had to do to win the title with a race to spare was to finish within one point of Alonso and within six of Raikkonen, and mm. that's it. But what happened is the team kept him out on dry tyres longer than they should have done. The rain came down. And of course, the, the track dried, but the pit lane didn't, did it? Because 
the pit lane. Oh. Um, now he did learn from that mistake. We saw it in mm. another race recently where he didn't make the same mistake twice. But as he came into the pit lane on well-worn, um, they were uh, grooved slick tires at that time, I think. Sure. They? Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. I'll go with that. Um, the grooves <laughs> had gone off. He goes into the wall and that's it. He's, he's out of the race. Um, and uh, then we're, we're into Brazil. Alonso finished P2 in that race. So he closed the gap uh, to four points going into the, the final race. Um, so we, we get to Brazil. Hamilton's on 107, still pretty comfortable. Alonso's on 103. Yeah, that's pretty good. Raikkonen's on 100. So Raikkonen... With, He's with, out of it. He's yeah, nowhere. He can't win it. He's not going to win it. He can't. It's impossible. Um, the race didn't exactly pan out as 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 we might have hoped uh, or at least Hamfosi hoped uh, <laughs> Hamilton at gearbox trouble only finished seventh that was probably one of those Maranello parts that uh, Dennis had, <laughs> had nicked from from Ferrari that failed uh, Alonso finished third uh, but Raikkonen won it uh, with the result that he was the unexpected champion by just one point uh, and, uh, and Hamilton and Alonso finished one point behind on, on equal points if you like so it was a, for McLaren, it wasn't a brilliant season, not one to remember for, for the right reasons. And, and uh, of course, Alonso was, was binned after that. He, he had to, he had to go to Ferrari and, and not win the championship there either. Um, but, uh, but while Hamilton went on to do great things. It's a great lesson, isn't it? That Raikkonen championship of just sticking with it, just keep plugging away and just doing what you're doing. Cause you, you don't know what's going to happen down the road, but we know we, we talk about Ferrari throwing things away. Ah, oh, well they Ferrari again, but my goodness, like th- that was a disastrous season, all of their own doing all completely unnecessary. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you can, you can blame the drivers if you like, you can certainly blame Hamilton and Alonso for what happened in Hungary. Mm. But it's really the team management that has to take responsibility for the failure. I mean, this sounds a bit like The Apprentice, doesn't it? Who was who was responsible for the failure of this task? It's Ron Dennis because he failed to manage them. You put two drivers out and you tell them different things and say, "Oh, don't worry, mate, you're number one." Oh, hang on, hang on. Sorry, I've got to interrupt you. We've got a, we've got a bumper for this. You see, whose fault is it? <laughs> it's the ultimate. Whose fault is it? Who? Who lost them? Uh, uh, um, how many did you say? A hundred million pounds, million dollars, and I, I, cost them well both championships, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we we, we can't apportion blame sixty forty, can we? Because someone has to be to blame. Someone so has I think, to be to blame. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alonso made the threat. Dennis showed terrible man- management skills, not for the first time in his career, by not diffusing the situation. Instead, he 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 went and blew it up completely in a way that was unnecessary. Mm. Uh, so it's it has to be Ron Dennis for failure to control his drivers, being a little bit duplicitous behind the scenes in terms of who had number one status, who didn't, whether there was parody, whether actually he was favouring Hamilton, which I think Alonso felt at the time, and and then not dealing with two drivers that had, had collided and collapsed, and you know there were expectations weren't managed there. I have a question, Misa at the back. So the conspiracy theory, of course, is that not only were they thrown out of the Constructors' Championship, but they were told not to win the Drivers' Championship and then no further action would happen of this spy gate. Yeah, uh, that's clearly nonsense, isn't it? Because they, you don't get a hundred million quid fine and get off lightly. And, <laughs> no. and the Constructors, of course, being thrown out of the Constructors was, was, was another financial penalty on top of that, wasn't mm. it? Because that's, that's where the real money is for the teams. It's not in the Drivers' Championship. That's for, for glory, as, as we know. Uh, but um, yeah, the uh, I, I don't believe a word of that. We, when it, it comes to the FIA, you know, Ferrari, um, what is it? Ferrari International Assistance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was an element of that probably to some extent during the Schumacher dominance, but I don't think that that was at play here. Ferrari had a really good car. I mean, they, 
they they were winning races right from the start. They won in Australia. Um, I think Raikkonen might have won five races during that season. Alonso and Hamilton won four each. Massa won one, mm. I think. Uh, so it, you know it was a good car. It was competitive the whole way through. But um, they certainly. I don't think things were orchestrated in the final race in that way. And I think given the mood that Alonso was in, he probably have told us about it by now, if that was the case. I'm sure. And it's such a, such a big defeat, you know, because if you look at like, obviously Hamilton's career, seven world titles, Alonso never really challenged again. And in fact, you know, it was a series of really disastrous moves. He, he told us how much he outdrove that Ferrari, but it was never in title contention. 2012, 2012, it was in title contention. But the the challenge really did sort of slip, and that that they Ferrari'd twenty twelve. Yeah, that, that was yeah, that was another mm. whose fault is it? Definitely the team fault, I think. Yeah. On that one, they made a thousand yard stare at the end when he was he was he couldn't believe he hadn't won it. Mm. Um, but he shouldn't have been there. He should have been in a McLaren and 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 doing well at, at there. You know, there could have been a imagine that as a teammate partnership if it still had lasted five or six years. We'd never have seen the the, the heights of Kovi or Heike Kovalainen. And the the wonderful things that he achieved during his time at, at McLaren, oh, right. uh, he, yeah, he, he fair to middling, but he didn't deserve to be in that that seat. It shows you how disruptive that 2007 season was. Whenever yeah. they were and, they were and, willing to put Heike Kovalainen in that car, and then ending up obviously in the disastrous McLaren, eventually coming back and basically what we thought was wasting probably the the prime of his later career and then obviously now coming back with with alpine where as we know because he's told us he's driven some of the best races of his career and i I know um i I hadn't quite put together the butterfly effect from possibly one race like i said they might have been giving them both a fair whack of it but then you fall out with your boss and all of a sudden this kid that's come in that's been very respectful that said well i'm the number two i'll do i'll do what you need me to do i'm a team player and is getting results, and didn't threat threaten to get you kicked out of the uh, of the championship with illegal documents. Yeah, you might start to look at Lewis Hamilton and go, "Yeah, you're fine. Go on, in you go. Yeah, in you go. Yeah, you can hang around for a bit longer." Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I'm sure that in the "What did Jeff get wrong?" section, we'll have mm. people point to a no- number of other catastrophic decisions that Alonso made. That's part of it. It's a feature, yeah. not a bug. Jeff deliberately gets at least fifteen things wrong. Per segment, so the we can hear from you. Obviously, you can comment in the the YouTube, but if you're a podcast listener, we love hearing from you. Feedback at mistapex.net. Me and Matt are going to do a mailbag episode on Tuesday, so make sure you get those questions in. Feedback at mistapex.net, or you can do Matt and or Spanners at mistapex.net as well. Jeff, can people follow you on social media? Yeah, join the other 98 people that have committed along with the, the bots. Uh, I think half of them are bots. It's um, Jeff O'Boyle one at Twitter, whatever that's called, uh, elonmusk.com. Have you only got 98 followers? Well, I had a lot more and then I got locked out of my old account, uh-huh. didn't I? And I couldn't reset the password because I'm technically it's, inept. It's just that I've got I've got 10.3,000. So if, we, if it was a competition, I'm just saying I've got 10.3,000. I can't yeah, stop saying that at the moment, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jeff O'Boyle. Come back soon with another historic teammate battle. Thanks. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Bear in mind that these segments have been recorded on Tuesday the 26th and Thursday the 28th to be published on Sunday. So if anything inexplicable happens, like the Miami Grand Prix is cancelled and our whole Miami Grand Prix 
preview uh, travelogue segment is out of date, all I can do is apologize. And just imagine how good it would have been in context of a Miami Grand Prix. But everything uh, being equal, hopefully this has landed in your podcatcher and on your YouTube well. And we'll see you on Tuesday. After that, we will be staying up late for a Miami Grand Prix race review. My, my tactic is to sleep on Sunday afternoon until the race and I'll just be up as late as it takes to do the race review and then I'll employ some Americans and Australians to come and join me for that as well. Um, So it will be ready for your Monday morning commute even if you're not staying up to watch it live. Until next time, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.